Welcome to Stuck in Development, the podcast where two media strategy nerds dissect what's developing in the world of entertainment. I'm your host, Carl, and with me, as always, in this highway through the danger zone of Ooh. the week's entertainment <laughs> is Aton. Hello, Aton. How are you doing? I'm good. Hey, Carl. And today we also have a, a very special guest, because a couple of episodes ago, well, more, quite a bit of episodes ago, you had Alex, of course, your now wife, join us. And today, Ariella is, is joining us to talk about, mainly to talk about Top Gun, because I think it, since we've been together, it's been the movie that I've seen you have the biggest reaction to. <laughs> so, welcome. Hi, thank you. <laughs> I... We will get deeper into Top Gun as we go into this episode, but I have not seen a film where more men our age have been more excited to see something opening weekend in a long time. Men our age? But specifically men. Okay. Because I think we were saying, didn't we see like a lot of, well, we watched the screening Friday at three, so there were a lot of older men. Yeah. No? How would you describe the demographic? Mm, yeah, like, I mean, not that old, like 40s. Yeah, I guess. But yeah, people got excited. We, we need to talk about that. We'll, we'll get there. Yeah, I, I think everyone in my screening was roughly millennial age, though that's also the, the rough people that are going to the theater that I'm going to in this area of San Francisco on a Saturday night. So I think it's confirmation yeah. bias and also yeah. friend bias of, of who I know and who I follow on Twitter. Of course. But uh, it's great to have you. I've been trying to get you to come yeah. for a long time. So I'm I happy we've got a... thing you thought was interesting until now. That's not true. <laughs> I think you have some good fun. Uh, <laughs> take, so. Yes, welcome, Ariella, and we're happy to have you. And... Before we dig into Top Gun, Maverick, we're going <laughs> to cover some other topics first. First, we're going to do our WOW. The uh, What does WOW even stand for? What are you watching? What are we watching? What are we I watching? I tried. It took me wow. a while. Yeah, when I uploaded the last episode, I was trying to like spell it out. And I was like, wait, what did this mean? Does this mean actually anything or was this a typo? But no, it's real. What are we watching? At this point, all we do is just kind of make a a, a Waluigi noise into the microphone and, and hope for the best in announcing the, the thing. I make wow. a wolf noise. You make a Wario song. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, uh, I think from our side, there were two things we, we started and finished, no, this week. The first thing was Severance. Mm-hmm. Have you finished Severance, Carl? Yeah. Yes, I have. Okay. I, I I, that was one of the few things I've been watching live, actually. So, yeah, finish Severance. Yeah. Pretty pretty good. I would say, what was your reaction to Severance? Yeah, it was good. I think I had heard a lot about it before people were saying it was like, wow, like so innovative and like so different and so well done. And I don't really have an opinion about that, but I liked it. I thought it was entertaining. I thought it was a good twist. At the end, the reveal of who Heli is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, excited to see the next season. We have a question for you, Carl, before you tell us your review. Is 
Mrs. Selvig slash Mrs. Culver, Culver, Caleb, what's her last name inside the... I do not remember anyway, her last name. Is she? Name. Yes. So, she's not... Well, what they want you to think is that she's not Severth, right? Because it's her same personality outside and inside. My hypothesis, I don't know if you share this, Ariella, is that she was actually Severth, but they kept, like, her Innie just took over, and her Innie lives outside and inside. Do you have a take? Is this does this matter? <laughs> Am I trying I to read too much? I don't think so. No, I think she's just a person who <laughs> really loved that guy who created the severance procedure. So, Carl, you have to break the tie here. Yes. So, I, I will just give a. We haven't given any real spoilers for severance. Just jump ahead a oh, few yeah. minutes if you don't want to be spoiled on severance. So, with that, I. I agree with Ariella here. I think she's just a religious fanatic Ooh. for what's the character's name? Kier. Kier mm-hmm. is the the Kier Egan. Um, no. The Henry Ford, Steve Jobs type Egan. Yes, Kier Egan. Yes, I I think that she is fully conscious of inside and outside, based on her interactions with Mark and some of the other characters here, and how. Strongly, she reacts to some things that are happening in the, the finale. But to your point, I I think that there is something to be said about how off-kilter she is. And, and I think what that really is getting at is that she is so maniacally obsessed with her job and finds fulfillment only in the mission that she's serving at work as opposed to any sort of, it appears, emotional fulfillment or familial fulfillment she, she doesn't have a lot going on besides the spiritual fulfillment that work seems to be providing her and with that it's so aggressively strange that i could see why you would draw that conclusion yeah it also seems like M- mr milchick just lives there yes i guess he's outside when he goes to dylan's house but mm-hmm. yeah we liked it I have another question about severance. What was the most disturbing part of it? Curious for both of your thoughts. I have a pretty clear take. Maybe disturbing is too strong, but like the most... I don't know what the word is. Off-kilter or just weird? I I think the most most chilling thing for me is... I forget what... John Turturro's character is named Irving. Not Ambrose. That's his character in Monk. What's his name? Irving. Irving. Yes, I knew it was another strange name. Irving. His paintings of the deeper bowels of the Severance facility and kind of the deja vu he's experiencing there is very chilling and, and disturbing. And overall, I loved the finale, and I loved especially kind of the last two minutes of the finale, which is just pure adrenaline as everything's kind of rushing towards a conclusion. And Mark screaming at the end, right before it cuts to black, mm-hmm. was pure goosebumps. So I, I think it's less chilling as as than kind of a really satisfying emotional reveal. Yeah. What about you? I don't know, but my hypothesis is that when Mark's wife was in the car accident, she, like, died, and then 
the way that they like tried to keep her alive was like putting this chip in her mind so like she can only live in the severed mm. universe like she can't exist as a real human but and so like that's the only way that they can keep her alive mm-hmm. that, that's my hypothesis that's pretty good is that the most chilling part for you? Maybe? No, I don't. I don't know what the most chilling part is. I think for me the most chilling part was the waffle party. Oh yeah, the waffle party was weird. Yeah, I, I think the... you might be going for the waffle party, so I let you have the waffle party. Thank you. With the follow-up mask cabaret, because it wasn't really a, <laughs> a mask anything else. No, the mask Chicago performance. Pretty good. That's pretty. Oh, the the it, painting. It, it, the painting of it, it the, seemed it seemed to be going from part. cabaret to eyes wide shut eventually it just ended before that yeah he he left before that the painting of the department is also chilling. yes yeah wait where they show some of those details mm-hmm. but yeah pretty good i i will say that something i was really worried about going into the show was exactly what you called out ariella that everyone was like pitching this as well wow, this is really innovative sci- sci-fi this is something I haven't quite seen before. And that's something that... Things like Westworld have been pitched to me like that and yeah. also seem to have thought that they were like that, but pretty quickly ended up being fairly pedestrian and really running out of steam and, and running out of, of ideas for how they're going to end it. I think Westworld actually painted themselves into a corner because they were actively trying to combat people trying to figure out the plot on reddit which is never a good idea just like if somebody figures out your plot that's not a bad thing you don't have to rewrite everything to do it and and i think people have also been burned too many times by things like like lost or just the damon lindelof sort of idea of um we're gonna not really have a clear resolution to a story but we're gonna over promise a lot of potential resolution and with that I, i think this toes the line by constantly pro- providing a lot more detail around the world in a way that seems like it was intentionally designed and architected and the story was designed and architected from the start instead of it being a thing where retroactively people are trying to draw these connections or, or retrofit something to make it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, the the clearest, uh, not Mount Rushmore, but you know, the highest peak of these types of sci-fi, it's devs. I think specifically because uh, I agree with both of you, I think that the finale is very good and it's very effective. But something that I think makes devs stand out so much is that it was a limited series and it was completely contained. Because I feel like yeah. whenever there is three seasons of Severance and you rewatch it completely, nothing is going to really matter here. Like, they're going to use this as a way to say, sure, to Heli, they're going to delete her memory and they're going to put her back in. There was no press. Mark, who knows? He might not go back to work and he's going to become like a person that tries to stop Severance. Irv is going to wake up confused and he's just going to go back to work. And Dylan never left. So it's going to be one of those that episode one is just after the cleanup and how nothing really happened. And... Well, I think their last episode was very good. Uh, I think that's what we were talking about after, right after it finished now. Yeah, I don't know if that's what's going to happen, but... That's how I feel. That's my take. Devs is a really good call-out, because I think... 
Devs and Alex Garland generally stab in the direction of the unknowable. I'm, I'm thinking things like, like 2001 A Space Odyssey, where you can kind of get emotionally how everything ties together, but it, there's no clear ending and there's no clear plot resolution besides kind of understanding what the imagery is and what the concepts are and drawing your own emotional conclusions from that. And I think that's a, that's a level of artistry rarely seen on television. And I think it failed for a lot of people to connect because it is a lot more obtuse and strange. But for me, it really worked. For Alex, it really worked. I know for you, it really worked. And that's something that I think is really well served by it being a self-contained single story. But I think Severance splits the difference between something like a Westworld where it's just endless plotting that doesn't really make sense, but also having clear themes and disturbing imagery that they really want to draw upon. So I'm excited to see what's next. I could see it falling apart the longer in the two that goes as they have to keep the show alive. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, would love to see it not run into that wall. And I think there's a there's a strong chance based on how good the season was that they have a plan. Yeah. Yeah. And and speaking of TV shows about the not necessarily calls, but things people really care about. The other thing that we've started watching is Under the Banner of Heaven. Have you heard about this? Is that the uh the thing that's not true detective that is true detective starring Andrew Garfield? Yes, yes. I really okay. like you you uh you recommended us for us as a watch. You wanna tell the listeners a little bit about it? Um I heard about it on TikTok because for some reason I'm on like ex Mormon TikTok and a lot of <laughs> ex Mormons were saying that this is a really good representation of uh Mormonism and religion and like the way that like history and like doctrine uh affect like present day for them and so it was like recommended through that and i really like shows and books and <laughs> things about cults so this was <laughs> right up my alley and um yeah and just in general like uh really extremist religion and like fundamental beliefs and things like that and i'm really interested in those kinds of things so i was interested in seeing the show we're only like two and a half episodes in or something like that i think so but yeah yeah and it's uh i like your description it's kind of a true detective but no but it's pretty ambitious we were talking yesterday because it tries to do kind of three things at the same time so it revolves mm -hmm. around a murder that's where it starts and there is basically three things that they three stories one is just the murder present day it's in like 19, I don't know, 80s? 80s or late 70s, and how they're trying to discover what happened. They're trying to basically tell the story of a family, the family that was involved. And they're also, like Rila said, like connecting how like the original stories or mm -hmm. canon of the Book of Mormon influence the way fundamental groups got created within the church and how also that drove and was connected to, potentially, we don't know yet, to the murder or that thing. So it kind of goes uh, between those three to try to 
tell the story. And uh, yeah, Andrew Garfield, because Andrew Garfield was in a true detective. No? Yeah, no? Or yeah, do I confuse him because the poster probably looks very similar? Looks very similar. Uh, I don't know if you're thinking about this, but something that's perpetually on Alex and I's watch list is the Red Riding trilogy, which is based off of a series of novels. This was adapted in 2009 in Britain as a as three TV films, and they are like these sprawling tales of of murder and small town small town England. So he's been associated with something very similar. That's where it's kind of that and the social network were a big one-two punch in, in bringing him to hmm. the attention of people. But I don't. He he was not in a mainline HBO True Detective. But he, I don't know. He works a lot. He's in a lot of wacky roles, and he is equally suited to play a murderer and a detective. I think. Yeah. No, he's he's good at it. No, we like him. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. I he still looks like. 18 to me it's weird <laughs> to see him try to mm-hmm. act as like a dad with two like 10 year olds yeah, yeah. it's yeah he just looks very young but yeah i think the my least favorite part of the show so far is when they go back in time and like try to show like the history of like how joseph smith wrote the book of mormon because it i feel like it's not as well integrated into the plot i don't know like i think it just doesn't like seem of like a very smooth transition from like the quote unquote present day of the story to like the yeah. past. It's like very sudden shift and I, I like get confused. Mm. Yeah, it's like a difficult way that they try to tell the story. It's good. Hulu. Effects on Hulu. They don't they don't sing uh, Joseph Smith, American Moses. <laughs> we sing that on the background. <laughs> um those were hours, but what have you... I mean, we'll talk about Top Gun in a second, but what, what have you watched this week? So, from on my side, the... I've been working on two things. One, I've been slowly working through Warren Beatty's 1990 film, Dick Tracy, which is a slog. It's, like, bad. It's weird. It, it's kind How of this last... It's only two hours and like 15 minutes, but I just, I find it terrifically boring. But I'm, I'm obsessed with Warren Beatty's film career. He's made very strange movies. Actually, the last, Alex is working on her dissertation right now. And last summer, while she was pulling an all-nighter, I stayed up and watched a very strange Warren Beatty film called Bullworth, which is a, about a 1990s politician who starts who's in LA and he starts rapping and it's like kind of offensive and so strange that it loops back to being like interesting satire. Highly recommend Volworth as a bizarro movie. It was an, it's an early Aaron Sorkin script as well. Very highly recommend how weird okay. it is. So anyway, now she's working on this and I'm also watching a Warren Beatty film. And this is from a weird era of Hollywood where Batman did well. So, in 1989, the Tim Burton one. So, everyone assumed that, ah, people don't want superheroes. People want to watch 1930s detective serials adapted. That's what people love about Batman. And this is a very straight and earnest adaptation of a detective, or of the Dick Tracy comics. And it looks like the Adam West Batman, except it's played entirely seriously. It has Madonna in a 
femme fatale role who sings nightclub songs written by Stephen Sondheim every 10 minutes for some reason. And it's just bizarre. Like, everyone's wearing weird makeup. Al Pacino looks like Wario or looks like Wally <laughs> Luigi. Uh, I... I don't know. I, I'm just making my way through it because it's such a strange object and it, it's something that I don't know. I'm fascinated by this thing that Disney thought was going to launch a massive franchise and they actually had a film. They were going to make a, a theme park ride off of it that eventually became Tower of Terror because this did so poorly that they were like, let's not make a theme park ride about this. So that's neither here nor there. The thing that I'm actually into this week that I've been watching is actually, above all odds, the Obi-Wan Kenobi show on Disney+. Mm. Plus. We haven't started. Tell us more. So y- you know how out I am on Disney Star Wars at this point, right? Like, yeah. the the Mandalorian feels like a video, a well-produced video game cutscene. Could not get invested in that at all. I also think that that's hampered by being in a set in a pretty confusing time in the Disney, in the Star Wars chronology where the JJ uh, Abrams made a brilliant decision to reset the stakes when making The Force Awakens, but it doesn't make a whole lot of emotional sense to reset the stakes because you're just in this nether region where the empire is still kind of ruling everything. Yeah. And I, I just think that that's kind of a confusing not really well-defined chunk of 10 years in, in the Star Wars canon, as it laid out by Disney, and is pretty much emotionally identical to the same chunk of time that Kenobi o- occupies, which is between the prequel trilogy and the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. That said, I have been really struck by Kenobi and how well it, it really builds its characters. It directly references and reckons with the prequel trilogy which is this is kind of the first this is the first real project to do it i, I know a lot of the the cg yeah, and animated and, shows yeah. have but like those are for children like i'm sorry they're, they're not like they're pretty good they're, the clone wars is but, very politics heavy bureaucracy banks it's very pixar in the way that the galaxy the, the works. first two the first two seasons or so of it are, are pretty rough. That's what I've seen. And I know it gets better. And I know it gets more interesting. I know Rebels has its fans as does the Bad Batch. But ultimately, this is the first thing that feels like a high budget. Like, this is canonical. We're bringing back you and McGregor. Like, this is real Star Wars. It's not... It doesn't feel like extended universe Star Wars or expanded universe Star Wars. And with that, it really reckons with... It's similar emotional through lines as The Last Jedi about thinking about what would happen to a person who lived through these events and suffered this failure and how they would feel and how they would reckon with it. Um, and it really digs into, I think, the, the psychology of, of, of Obi-Wan Kenobi quite a bit. There's also a, quite a bit of time is dedicated to young Leia as well, which is not a spoiler. Mm. You find that out like halfway through the first episode. And I immediately, like my guard was raised when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is going to be bad. But it it becomes pretty clear that they are interested in, in understanding the psychology of what a an adopted child in royal Alderaan society, how they would feel and how 
how alien they would feel to that society. And I think there's just a lot of emotional heavy lifting done by the writing and by the performers that I did not expect. And I did not expect to be moved by any element of the show, but I've, I've found it really interesting so far. So I'm excited to, to dig further into it. That's pretty good. Yeah, I want to watch it. Have you, have we decided that I might watch that alone? <laughs> Maybe. I don't feel strongly about it either. Ariela shrugged for those, uh, for all of you who can't see her. <laughs> I don't feel strongly about it either way. I'm not, I'm not uh, very familiar with the Star Wars world. Mm-hmm. But you like Ewan McGregor. You can imagine him singing on top of a red <laughs> elephant. Sure. No? Okay. Maybe that happens with an elephant with three trunks. Oh, that's pretty good. I'll, are we I'll, excited? I'll, I'll watch it. As, as, a, as a group, are we excited about Baz Luhrmann's Elvis, speaking of Moulin Rouge? So, I think literally when we were on the movies waiting for Top Gun, I started reading some of the first things, and apparently it's pretty rough. And I think, I don't know if it's because growing up in... I'm curious for your perspective, Ray. Like growing up in Mexico, Elvis for me was a nothing... I, what's the saying? A uh, nothing sandwich? Like, yeah. I have no nothing idea burger. who he is. A nothing burger. <laughs> <laughs> nothing sandwich is cooler. Uh, I have no idea who he is. I don't really know any songs. Like, if you ask me what what do you think first when you think about Elvis, I think of, like, Vegas doppelgangers or actors that impersonate mm-hmm. Elvis. So I don't really have that connection, in, even in a way that I had, of course, to Queen. I loved Queen as a kid for Roman Rhapsody. Elton John, even as a figure, I knew way more than Elvis, of course, way more uh, contemporary. So I don't have that part really doing anything for me. And apparently it's not that great. Do you have a similar experience in Mexico? or? Yeah, I kind of feel like our generation is too far removed, like doubly, like in age and also geographically to really have cared much about him or known yeah much about him so yeah i, I don't really know his like I, I think i would still be interested in watching the movie because i know he like i don't know specifics like specific details about his life or even most of his music but he's such a big name that i would still be interested in watching the movie but i have like zero expectations about it yeah yeah. When I think about Elvis, I think about Forrest Gump. Funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, what about I, sorry, you're, you're, you're absolutely right that we are you're absolutely right that we are generationally just of the wrong generation to appreciate Elvis inherently. Elvis, I mean, my parents were like even alive for the rise of Elvis, really. Like, he's far outdates the generations that would be really talking to us about pop culture. That said, he's a showboat, and I think that's something that Lerman's definitely well-equipped to tackle as far as material. Uh, I... The Great Gatsby is one of those works that I think is important thematically rich and great but i kind of just hate the the book and how it's written but i think the bones of the story are good so i quite like his adaptation even though of course it's very gonzo and and uh has a lot of anachronism in it so the the reviews i'm I'm seeing out of can for elvis 
there are people that despise it. There are quite a few people who love it, but the people who love it and the people who despise it say this film is essentially if you stretched the opening 20 minutes of Moulin Rouge to be two and a half hours. And I think that's a pretty good litmus test for what you want out of this film. For me, that's exactly what I want out of this movie. Yeah, that actually sounds good. Insanity for two yeah. and a half hours. Yeah, the first 20 minutes of Moulin Rouge were great. Speaking of Ekwon McGregor. <laughs> Um, exactly. No, that's pretty good. Um, yeah, something that I, uh, at least as you can tell, didn't get me that excited. But yesterday we were sitting. What were we doing? Yesterday, I don't know. But I opened my phone and Bob Burnham tweets, stay tuned. And then five minutes later, he tweets that in an hour. So yesterday, uh, Monday the 30th, Memorial Day, he was going to release outtakes that he filmed for the special inside from last year that he didn't release and that he had been editing for the past two months. And, you know, my first reaction to Rayla was like, okay, this is going to be like 13 minutes of like semi bloopers. And I clicked on the link. I couldn't see it. We were somewhere. Why don't I Oh, know? we were in the rec- at the Red Sox game. Oh yeah, we were at the, at the stadium at Fenway Park. And I click on the video. It's an hour and 18 minutes. And we were so excited. Ariel and I are huge Bobornum fans. We started watching it just before we started recording. It's like the same the same quality level. Yeah. No, it's... There are some uh, new songs. Like, completely new songs, samely edited. There is some stuff where he takes you a little bit behind the scenes of how he does it. He shows you, like, at the same time, you know, nine takes that he had for a specific song from inside. Some of the tests. Some weird footage. It's in 4K. It's on YouTube, which is <laughs> interesting. He plays with, like, ads as if YouTube was going to show it to you. And my uh, uh, creative, my fan side is like, okay, this is very interesting. My podcast side starts thinking about everything he's doing here because it's YouTube and it's not Netflix. And it also makes me think why were some of the reasons why he didn't use some of these songs in Netflix and what's going to happen with like licensing why did Netflix let him do it he, it was up to like 1.5 million views a little bit ago and and even as a proxy of the people that watched Inside in general that like Bob Burnham or that heard about him are you know relatively likely to see it so even if we assume that like 60% see it it's like an interesting proxy even if finger in the air of how many people watched Inside on Netflix that's what I'm thinking um, so yeah, interesting that he, I think it's longer than Inside, and it's not on Netflix. I don't know, bizarre. Um, uh, takes. Well, I, I am surprised that it's not on Netflix, but I'm sure that was all cleared ahead of time. Oh, for sure, and yeah. The rights were cleared, and it, they realized that it's a, a good brand maneuver, but... Even then, something that's odd is, so, like, Jackass Forever came out this year, and with Jackass, they always release, like, four and a half, so they released, Johnny Knoxville released Jackass Forever, and then he released Jackass Four and a Half, which, weirdly, is being distributed on Netflix, despite the other one being distributed, I think, through Peacock or Paramount Plus. So, 
two separate distributors. It must be Paramount Plus because it's Viacom, so Paramount Plus. But it that's a, like a packageable, similar like outtakes things that could have been in the film but made the cutting room floor, and they got packaged and sold to Netflix as a separate separate item of like an extra hour of footage. I'm shocked that Netflix didn't considering that they're trying to cut spending left and right on content here. Shocked that they didn't just upload it on Netflix as a separate thing. But maybe maybe it was just the wishes of Burnham to um, really keep it separate and to make it not like an ancillary work. He cut the stuff out for a reason. Um, there's always, people are always like, oh, the original cut of, I don't know, like Thor Ragnarok was three and a half hours long and it ended up being two hours. What are we missing? It's like, well... The original cut was that long because it was every scene played in sequence without any sort of editing or like the the process yeah. of editing is removing things for clarity and for thematic resonance. That's not just to delete scenes. So I, I think there, he had a reason to remove this stuff, but it's interesting that the value was just as stunt marketing for, for Burnham and Netflix and not actually on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, before moving on, I would say there is another Jeffrey Bezos song. There is a Joe Biden song, which is pretty funny. There is a, a song about five years into our relationship. What are the things that you think about? Uh, what else do we like? I don't know, there is just more stuff. The spider. Oh, yeah, the, the song about a spider uh, that he finds in his apartment. And a lot of more tests. I feel like for people, probably for you, that are interested in the technical aspects, there is just a little bit more about him testing things and trying things and, and seeing him. I don't know. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Play it in the background. Um, and then lastly, in the WoW, I guess the nice transition because it's things that we actually are not watching, but I think it's interesting that we're not. Yes, uh, last week we teased about how the four big streamers were having kind of their four big shows. You talked about one, Kenobi from Disney+. Plus. The other one that was released this week is Stranger Things. From Netflix and at least in the circles that I move and my Twitter and my TikTok I have heard zero things apparently ten, more than 10 million dollars per episode and barely a, as quick have you read or seen anything really of people watching it mm, the only thing I've seen but I'll preface this by saying I don't I never watched it so I know zero about it and I also like I, I don't know anything about it but my, I have, I'm on a Facebook group from like alumni from my college, from Emerson College, and someone oh, yeah. took a screenshot that one of the characters was wearing an Emerson College shirt. And so they were like, who from the production team is an alumni? And then uh, someone made that t-shirt um, to sell it to, as like, unofficial college merch and they're gonna give the proceeds to uh the families in texas uh mm. who from the yeah in uvalde texas so for a good cause we were discussing Ethan and was asking questions about the legality of using <laughs> the name emerson college and like unofficial merch but so yeah apparently a lot of people from emerson were watching stranger things and saw this yeah cameo i will push back 
and say that I I have one data point here, which is that there was a Kate Bush song used in one of the episodes, and Kate Bush is is trending across Spotify and and Apple Music now. So, as a leading indicator, a song from a older artist is being discovered by Gen Z and is is topping charts now because of this yeah. show. So there's that. Um, and I think algorithmically, a lot of Gen Z content's probably pushed out of our feeds. That said, I've also seen people arguing about this on social media. And one data point somebody said is, look at all the, the Stranger Things consumer products they sell at, at stores. And so, but we, we know from a business perspective that consumer products division at Netflix isn't doing too hot and never really took off. So that's not a great argument. In, in terms of, of cultural impact here. I look, I I think Netflix has culturally just shot themselves in the in the foot here with their release strategy where they pinned so much of their strategy on the binge the binge watch. Everyone moved away from that over the last few years very successfully. Netflix is unwilling to to give that up. So they bifurcated the season and left the last three episodes for a date later this summer. And culturally, that sends two signals. One, it sends signals to people that just want to binge everything. Eh, I'll just wait and binge it all when it's it's ready. And two, it sends the signal of there's no rush to watch this because we're in peak TV and there's just so much con- content out there. You can watch it at a later date. I, I think it was a weird decision to bifurcate it instead of just dropping it all at once like they usually do. Yeah, But... Hey, at least at least Netflix gets to string people along for one more month, and they get to they get to string them on all the way through Q two to make that two million dollar subscriber drop a little less scary potentially. Yeah, yeah. I still uh, not only I would add to the culture thing they just gave the summer to Kenobi, basically. Yeah, they did. Well, I would say they gave the summer to For All Mankind, but I know that. There aren't that many of us that would say that, but that's still pretty good and pretty exciting. Um, the other news, just speaking of Netflix, we wanted to touch on for a second because a couple of weeks ago, they announced they were laying off 150 people. Which, yeah, this is this yeah. is something that I, I wanted to bring up last week, but in our catching up with each other haze, we, we forgot to talk about it. Continuing fallout from Netflix's stock drop and the... People reevaluating their fundamentals is, as you said, they announced layoffs of 150 people about two weeks ago. This is out of 11,000 people in their workforce, so not super significant yeah. in terms of the number of people impacted. That said, it's interesting looking at where these people were cut, so that about 1% of the workforce. Primarily people working in editorial and content and cultural creation roles. So something I think I've discussed on this show that I've been driven crazy by and, and blocked for, for years is all the like identity, Netflix identity Twitter things where yeah. just like name an account. identity group. Yeah, name an identity group and there is a Netflix account just pitching content at people of that identity group. And it's just, it's always been so disingenuous to me, especially like, I mean, the, the single data point that says everything is one day at a time getting canceled, something that was critically beloved, culturally beloved, loved by the community that it uplifted. And they just 
canceled it, but they're still going to keep shoving us like one-off seasons of stuff they're they're canceling down people's throats. Like it, I don't know the the whole yeah. build your as an identity group, build your your own identity around Netflix content thing has always just felt kind of icky and gross to me, especially since Hollywood itself and the people making these things are not as diverse as Netflix wants it to seem. And a lot of these people were impacted and let go as, as part of this, as well as people that had just moved to LA to work for a new editorial group that Netflix had just founded to start writing content. That, that was the first thing to go. And, and that just to me shows how transparently all of this culture movement and culture shift stuff Netflix has been pushing for years is, it's just the second that it gets hard, that's the first thing to go because it's not impacting the bottom line. It's it's about goodwill, and goodwill doesn't matter when you're losing two million, two million subscribers. It's subscribers. It's just really sad. Yeah. I think from my side, the part of the West that first stood out was going back to the times where, you know, Fang, and I always was like, why is Netflix in Fang? And it wasn't only because, like, the size or the growth, but it, it was almost, like, the type of brand that they wanted to build themselves to be. Also, in terms of the employees that they were able to attract. And, you know, working at Google, something that wasn't explicit, at, at least to me, but that was very obvious, is we don't do layoffs. And, of course, they could, mm-hmm. you know, they, they could do it at the height of where they were and the margins that they had, but... It was still a very explicit, uh, sorry, like a very implicit, you could see it where it's like, oh, you know, this team that was 800 people or 1,000 people, the product is going away. There are no layers. And we're going to figure out, and it might take a year or a year and a half to find roles for all of these people, but they're staying. And, you know, economic circumstances or whatever, but I, I think this speaks a little bit to that of, I think Netflix tries to position itself, especially for the talent that they're trying to attract as being at the same level as mm-hmm. this. And even without looking to your point about where they came from, it's still kind of a big blow where I think where people think about these things and they think about, yeah, I want to, you know, these are all at the end of the day companies and you don't own in everything. But if there is some sort of loyalty that is like, I want to feel taken care of, even if it's only 1.5% of the just of the of the workforce i think that's the mm-hmm. signal that came across to me i had the opposite experience with at&t which we had layoffs every six months to be completely honest and the google culture of this is the correct culture you're spending this much time and energy developing talent and de- developing loyalty to your company and you're just going to jettison them the second that the thing that they happen to be working on by random happenstance mm-hmm. is is ended. Especially at a company like Google where you have five redundant solutions to the same things. That's just a terrible that's a terrible thing to do for, for people and their emotional health and their financial livelihood. And it also it's optimizing on the wrong thing. You should let people go that are underperforming at a certain level but you should also be investing in in the people that you chose to invest in in the first place and, and really make sure that they land somewhere that's just the right thing to do at at&t uh 
every time a, a layoff rolled around, we kind of knew who was going to be laid off because intentionally nobody was ever fired. We were just the teams would end up being bloated because we would want to because managers want to make want want to make sure that they had headcount that if there was a layoff, they lost someone that was underperforming and not someone that they actually needed. Because these layoffs were pretty indiscriminate. It was pretty much just looking at the, the budgets and saying we need to cut 10% of, of headcount across the board to meet, meet our budgets based on our projections. How do we do this? And you cut the underperformers and it's all good. But that's something where it's not about developing the employees and making sure that they actually are able to perform well in the future. It's not cultivating the right amount of talent. And it creates a lot of overhead and bloat and excess until the layoff happens and the layoff could have been prevented in the first place. But just by virtue of it being a 150 year old company, they had no other choice. And I think it sends a, a signal to blue chip investors that, Oh, we're doing something about the books. Like it's, mm. it's very serious. We have to let people go as opposed to finding other ways to be more efficient and save money. Yeah. Pretty sad that the market enjoys layoffs. Yeah, me too. Um, hey, I was technically laid off in uh, when I went to business school. I what? volunteered though. I yeah. Uh, well, there was a layoff happening, and I was I worked with my boss. I was like, "Hey, I know there's a layoff happening. Let's engineer this." So I got a two month severance package, or I got like, I got a severance package of it. I got some extra stock options thrown in my four hundred one k. Worked out great. An interesting, strategy. and I saved somebody else's job, honestly. Right? Yeah, yeah. They but it was stupid. You stay. Wow. Interesting. I learned something about you every day. Yeah. Now we can finally talk about Top Gun. I'm very excited. <laughs> I like can talk about how much I love the movie and how much I tried to go back to watch it this past weekend again. I didn't go at the end because we ended up going to the stadium and we did other things, but I'm 99.9% sure I'm going to watch it in the theaters again because I really like this movie. I'm going to start there. I really like this movie. We watched it in IMAX. It was so much fun. There were people clapping midway through the movie multiple times, but like clapping like above their heads. <laughs> like they were about to stand up clapping. Um... <laughs> I mean, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into it, but the last 30 minutes are pure joy of cinema and adrenaline and excitement and holy shit and holy wow. And it's so much better than the first one. We finally watched the first one last week and it has just the right tones about what they were trying to do. And anyway, let's get into it. But first, quick reactions. Ariella? I don't know. Like, what? Just your first reaction. I guess my first reaction is it was better than the first one. Okay. I We watched the first one like a few days before we watched this one for the first time, both of us, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, the first one was pretty boring. <laughs> I really agreed. Yeah. I didn't really like follow the plot and... I didn't understand what was happening when they were fighting in the planes. Like, I couldn't follow what was happening. Um, and so I didn't know what to expect in the second one. But yeah, it was much better. Um, 
Oh, my first, first, first reaction when we started watching the first movie was that oh, there was a this typo. Is, this is pretty good. <laughs> there was a typo in, like, the introduction where they explain that, like, Top three, Gun was three created. Seconds. Yes, I think I saw this typo. Three seconds into the movie. It. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then I... But you should tell what, what the typo was. So the typo was that it said, ensure, instead of ensure, like, I-N-S-U-R-E, instead of... E-N-S-U-R-E. And then I I looked it up because I started questioning myself. And it's not technically a typo because ensure one of the, like, secondary definitions uh-huh. is also to, like, make certain of something. But then when we went to watch the second movie, they fixed it. So someone else also <laughs> thought it was a typo in the how many years? That 36. In the 36 years since it's been out, somebody has had it in their mind that they wanted to change it. So that was the point where I clapped in the movie, yeah. in the and theater. For context, Ariel is a copy editor, so she really cares about this, <laughs> as you can tell. But yeah, we got very excited when when it came across three seconds. It's like, oh, they fixed it. It's unsure now. It's still being sure. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Pretty good. What about you, Carl? What's your first take? So my, my first take was very similar. I watched the first one two weeks ago and this actually reminds me of the Elvis thing we were talking about where culturally I just think the moment for us liking it has passed and it wasn't something passed on to us by our parents so it's very 80s it's very boring Um, everyone everyone talks about how hot the dudes are in it and I just really no they're very 80s the uh, the volleyball scene is it, it's very it's all very sexless. Like everyone was talking about how sexy it is. It's 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 about as sexy as in, like an Abercrombie ad, which is not very sexy. It's just kind of stilted and, and weird looking. And I, I think the the new one is also about that sexless, but it's kind of playing as a parody of itself at times, and is it knows yeah. what the reputation is. And I think yeah. that's much more fun as opposed to mm, this, this horny beach volleyball scene, which is fine. Um, but yeah, dated, and I think, Ariella, you, you've called out something very specific here, which is the stakes of the action feel very thrown together and unclear, and the, I think the editing also makes it fairly unclear in, in the first one as well. Whereas in the new one, I, the thing I was most impressed by across the board was the screenplay of all things. The screenplay... I forget who all worked on it, but I know Christopher McQuarrie worked on it, so I know yeah. that he brought some some logic and and good screenwriting tactics to it. Okay, real quick, it's uh, Aaron Kruger, Eric Warren Singer, and Christopher McQuarrie is the third writer, so I assume he worked probably the least on it, but that had some edits here. And it really, one, retroactively brings a lot of emotional heft to the character of Maverick and mm-hmm. to the relationship he had with his wingman and his uh, his friend and, and competitor, Iceman. Um, people talk about Goose's death in the first one as being this big watershed thing that made them sad. I felt very little in the first one, but I think this one does a lot to recuperate that. But most importantly, you, have, you see so many variations and elements of the climactic mission woven in and subtly 
with the stakes subtly raised during every previous action sequence in the film, that you understand exactly what the objective is of the mission is, you understand how tense and scary it is, and you also just get to sit back and enjoy watching it all happen for real, both in context of the story and the fact that they're actually flying these fighter jets, but in a different environment and watching the thing happen in real time. And it's really spectacular to watch because they lay all that groundwork and it's not confusing like the first one was. Yeah. And it's at a level where I was telling Ariel almost like what they needed to do. You kind of already know it. They need to go fast here. Yeah. They need to go fast here. Oh, here comes the climb. They're going to turn upside down. They're going to go down. Miracle number one. Miracle number two. Go out. Sam's dogfight. Like, you know it perfectly. And you can see it almost as it's happening live. Oh no, he's I mean, a little bit behind. He's going to run out of time. You know it. Does it take a page out of J.J. Abrams' book and literally just rip off the trench run from A New Hope? Yes, it does. Sure. Like down to the, the small target. But it looks cares? so it's great. Cool. It's cool. It looks they so cool. <laughs> sideways. They go under the bridge. They go up the mountain, down the mountain. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think, it, I think it's great. I think the emotional stakes also just generally uh, are there, which is... Interesting. Miles Taylor is very good. He looks exactly like Goose. Which is yeah, insane. Miles, they Miles put Teller, mustache and a tan and he looks exactly like this other guy. But very Miles good. Miles Taylor brought a lot to this role. I was surprised. Yeah. It was great. Um, the Ariel and I, it completely went over our heads that Penny, the new love interest, was actually mentioned in the first one. Even though we watched the movie Same here, I before. didn't hear that. We watched the later. movie two yeah. days before. And uh, it's kind of weird. Ariela was saying, no, you were saying right after it finished how the love story doesn't have to be there. No. You know, it tries to ground the ground the character, but the emotions are somewhere else, and it's fine. It seems also it seems almost satirical, like the fact that they are, they're imitating the love scene from the first movie, like with the music and like mm-hmm. the position of the people having sex and like it's it's like an imitation of it but it's so unnecessary and i don't know but it it seems almost like satire the fact that they're like remaking it in this second movie but i will say going back to what carl said about like this not being like our generation after we left the movies, I was talking to my mom and she asked me what movie we went to see and I told her and she was like, <gasps> like she, she was like, oh my God, that's such a great movie, the first one. And I was like, you've never <laughs> talked to me about this movie once. Like, you've never even mentioned it to me. And now she was like, it's so like romantic and the, the music is so iconic. And like, she started saying all these things and I was like, you've never talked about it once before until now but like she had this very strong reaction to it so i feel like maybe that's also why they added the love scene is like for these people that that's what they liked about the first movie yeah the the one thing that i could take that i thought about for a second but i'm just super overthinking it the one takeaway that i had from him is that he's almost the character maverick we'll get to maverick uh he's almost like the anti-james bond in both movies he's even though the first scene at the bar when he meets Charlie in the first movie, he's like a player. Yeah. He goes super slow. He has like seven dates before he even tries anything. He never tries to go into the house. 
like everything is like very stationary. Like, oh, this is a good guy, but a good guy kind of in this type of way also, which is I, I guess part of what they are trying to show, but it just feels unnecessary and weird. Well, the the whole thing with the whole thing with Tom Cruise is he's kind of sexless. Like he always has been. He's always either been like the perfect Ken doll. Like not he he doesn't. It's not like um. It it's not like like Alexander Skarsgård where he like looks like a Ken doll. He looks perfect. Like Tom Cruise doesn't look perfect, but he's like the all American boy. Like he's just this archetypal dude. But there's also just that creepily exacting energy to Tom Cruise, just in every one of his performances, and especially today, where, I don't know, I, I can't envision being in bed with Tom Cruise, just, like, how <laughs> demanding he would be, and just be like, no, we're doing, like, just specifically, like, hitting the right beats of everything, and, like, it has to be well choreographed. I don't know. It just seems, it seems like this man doesn't do anything improvisationally as an actor, despite the fact that, uh, Maverick's motto is what? Like, don't think, just do. Mm-hmm. Tom Cruise has never j- not thought and just did in his entire life. That <laughs> is very clear from every single performance he's ever put on screen. <laughs> and I think the choice to kind of lean into how disconcerting that is with the, the, the central romance here makes it feel like a fun callback and, and parody, but also like makes it work emotionally. In a, in a way that that's surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's pretty strong. Um, the action, again, it's just fantastic. Uh, Joseph Kosinski, I was listening to an interview he did in The Big Picture on the Ringer podcast, and he talks a lot about how he loves to try to make everything as, uh, you know, actual footage as possible, which is funny because he did Tron Legacy, still and he talked how, how in the movie the only pieces of cgi are like the explosion of the spoilers the explosion of the of the um, the fighter jet of the roosters fighter mm-hmm. jet when he gets taken down and the sam missiles and i think one or two of the like fighter stuff but everything else he talks about they develop new cameras they develop this new camera that they called the vision hawk or something where they separate the lens and the sensors from the hard drive and they're connected by a fiber of yeah so they that's... put both of them there and just trying to make it here one thing that i thought was super interesting is that he couldn't see or communicate live with the actors when they were in the air so they would go and record for an hour or an hour and a half and then they would come back and then they would all sit down and watch the recording and give feedback and see what needed to happen again all the way to oh in this scene when you went like this you turn to this side but the plane is going to go on the other side. We have to redo it. Or the light wasn't perfectly right. And it gets into just a ton of fascinating... Like, they had to use the F-18s instead of the F-35s because they needed the two-person fighter jet. Because, yeah, spoiler, they're not actually driving the planes. And uh, the all of those logistical parts, if you take away the... Ariel and I have... It wasn't as bad as I thought in terms of like the glorifying of the American industrial uh, military complex, even though it's absolutely there. But putting that aside for a second, the logistic parts of making this freaking work and somebody saying making a movie about these fighter jets 
is one of the most unique things that we do as humans. And I think Tom Cruise, again, is going to take to the next level by going to space. But it's very, very impressive. And I think the biggest reason I want to go back and see it again in a, in a big, big theater. So the, I want to go back to the, the sensor thing you were just talking about. As, yeah. as cool and insane as it is that Christopher Nolan shoves a 250-pound IMAX camera or whatever, or I think it's up to 400 pounds, into a World War II fighter jet for Dunkirk. Like, it looks great. It is cool. Wow. Like, way to go, Christopher. Like, Chris, there, there's Chris. something so cool and magical about just using digital photography and the fact that sensors are so cheap and easy to use that, like, you can do this. I, I know uh, Danny Boyle was one of the first people to really deconstruct cameras in that way, I think on 127 Hours, where it's just, oh, to get a camera to fit into these these angles, there's no practical reason why the medium recording an image needs to be behind the thing shooting the image when it's connected by wires and not optical light. And that's just the magical stuff you can do. I And I know like Joss Whedon on the first Avengers, he just would shoot things on iPhones very early on because he could just blow up an iPhone and nobody cared and they could actually have a real explosion that washes up on over an iPhone. Like there's cool stuff you can do there and it really opens up the world of being able to do amazing photography with real things like this. And it just looks so much better than if you shot something on, C- on, on film and then put CG plates on top of it to, to make it look yeah. like uh, a special effect. It looks yeah. great. Yeah. And there are so many scenes that come to mind, but the one that keeps popping up is the beginning of the third act when they're going down the cloud and it's the four fighter jets. And yeah. It's him and you can see the other three behind him. Goosebumps. It's so fun. <laughs> Ariela still Goosebumps. I liked it so much. Why are you so surprised? I'm curious. I don't see know. See the You side? like so many movies. But you've never been like, let's watch it again now. Like, we left the theater. Like, we haven't, we hadn't even left. Like, we left the 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 sitting down area of the theater, but we were still like mm-hmm. in the box office area. And he was like, when should we come again? You've never said that about any of the other movies that we've ever watched together, ever. The last time I said that, for a movie that I wanted to re-see in the theaters was Avatar. Where I was like, holy smokes, this is not only an amazing movie, I need to watch it again in the theater. It was Avatar. Well, and I, th- I think that's what this is. Is I for, for me, there are films that I latch onto where I'm like, I just want to see this as many times in the theater as I can because that's my preferred method of seeing it. And who knows if I'll ever be able to see something some of these films again in a the theater. Uh, so that's why I saw West Side Story three times in a theater. But... Uh, in this case, there are certain things that even beyond that, or the experience of watching it is going to be superior in a theater, especially in IMAX. Something like Gravity, a film that I like quite a bit that I haven't watched probably five years, mm-hmm. plays very differently on a TV than it does when you're fully immersed in, in IMAX. I'm going to go see this again in, in IMAX because I only saw it in on a standard very big screen. Oh. I, I know. See, I was I was going I went with somebody who doesn't have the uh, AMC A-list and I just felt guilty pushing IMAX on them when they were going to pay 27 bucks for a ticket and I paid 24 bucks a month for the that for free. That makes 
But that's yeah. it. I, I think it, it just really is. It's hard to walk out of that movie and not want to see some of those things as big as possible again because it's so cool that you get to see that and it's it's somebody really doing it on screen. Yeah, and then the last thing that I was thinking about this yesterday when we were in the at the stadium, I was just thinking how a big part of being at the stadium, you know, part of the experience and the food and hanging out is having people next to you all reacting to the same thing. Yeah. Yesterday, the Red Sox lost 10-0. There was literally no second where we could root happily for something. It was still, it's still a great experience because everyone, you feel the energy around, you feel the excitement, you feel the tension. And being in this movie theater, it wasn't even full. Again, we went at 3, 3 p.m., 3.30 yeah. p.m. It's very exciting. You feed off the energy and you you, you feed off that. And uh, even though we didn't clap. <laughs> yeah, I think I... I mean, that was the part that I enjoyed the most about seeing it in the movie theater was, like, seeing other people reacting to it. That was pretty funny, and it was, like, a nice experience. But I think for me, I don't know if it's, like, a sensory issue, but I don't... Like, it's too loud for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I... So I would just rather watch it at home. I don't know. Like, it's... I don't know that I can tell the difference between this having been shot in real life versus not. Like, as someone who doesn't really understand the behind the scenes, I, I can't, I don't know that I can tell the difference, so it doesn't make that much of a difference to me if I watch it in the big screen or not. And it's, like, as a sensory thing, it's just, like, too much for me. Like, too loud and too big. And I would just rather be, like, at home where I can control the... The volume. The volume and, like, add captions right. whenever I want in whichever language I want. What if we go to the Dolby instead of the IMAX? It's still so loud. That's still the Dolby's right even now. louder than the IMAX. I know. <laughs> but it has recliners. It's going to be nicer. Oh, so you can get further down and away from the sound. I, I say yes. Uh, well, I, we would be remiss if we didn't dig into the numbers, given, you know, the premise of our podcast here. Yes. So... This film did spectacularly, especially for COVID. Opening weekend of final domestic gross, about $127 million. So on top at the box office, ahead of Doctor Strange, which only pulled in $16 million this weekend. A steep drop-off, uh, 50% drop-off from the weekend before, and continuing kind of a, a series of 50% drop-offs. In comparison, Doctor Strange pulled in... 187 million in the the first week and I, I have a feeling that this film based on word of mouth that I've heard yeah it's gonna keep growing I don't think it's gonna have a 50% drop off I think it's going to it might not grow week to week but it's not gonna drop off that much I think it's gonna stick around for a minute a lot of people are really excited to see this and a lot of people wrote it off just like we did yeah going into it and we're really impressed and I think that's just going to keep carrying it forward especially since it's so approachable yeah I, I think it's I saw that it hit 150 something for the four day weekend and not only is it the best opening of Tom Cruise's career he's the first time he crosses 100 which was a bit surprising that's shocked me too yeah. that, that's something like um, in uh, so World of Worlds was actually his, his previous uh which surprised me there, but I'm, I'm surprised that 
at least Mission Impossible Fallout didn't didn't make that. But yeah. no, even adjusted for inflation, like it's significantly yeah. the the best opening of his, his career. Yeah, Dead Reckoning Part One next year might also play a role in this. Um, I think the other part that Ariel and I have been laughing for the past three days that we wanted to get your takes on, Carl, is the name. Ah. What does Top Gun Maverick mean? Ariel, can you please walk us through your feelings about the name? <laughs> My feelings is that it's so dumb because it's like naming a movie, a sequel after the main character. So it's like The Lion King... Simba. Yeah. Or yeah. like... Avatar Jake Sully. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, we already know who the main character is because there was a whole movie about them. So why are you naming the main character again? Like, I feel like the only scenario where it would make sense to add a name is if you're not going to tell the story of the main character. If you're going to tell the story of a side character, then you need to, like, clarify who the story is going to be about. But we were already expecting the movie to be about Maverick. So why are they naming him? And there's so many good alternatives. Like? Like Top Gun. Here we go again. In honor of Mamma Mia, of course. Top Gun 2. Top Gun 2 spelled T-O-O. I really like Tom Gun. I thought it was a pretty strong candidate. Um... (laughs) <laughs> Top Gun, Goose's Legacy. Even though it has nothing to do with Goose's Legacy. Yeah, because it's about Goose's Legacy, about his, his son. son. Goose's that Legacy, the ultimate physical, legacy. Yeah, exactly. Okay, okay, exactly. It's the ultimate, yeah. I yeah, think that, yeah. like, a serious one, I think that would have been a good one. Yeah. I um, like Top Gun and the Unidentified Enemies. Top Gun and the oh, Unnecessary yeah. Romantic Plot. I like that. Top Gun and the Tom Cruise Gets His Boating License. Top Gun condones Scientology. Oh, yeah. Uh, I also... Uh, Top Gun uh, Top Gun Maverick versus fifth generation enemy fighters. Yes, yeah. that we're not going to say how they're called. Uh, we also like... Uh, I think Top Gun Maverick could have also made sense if his call name was Maverick and then he died and they gave him to Rooster. Or yeah. if the next movie is Top Gun Rooster or Top Gun Hangman or Top Gun Phoenix. Uh... I think we had some more. We had a uh, top, top Top Gun Bang Bang, <laughs> which is good because, like you mentioned, it uh, talks about Bang, Val Kilmer being in uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yes. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. We're yeah. gonna say Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. But that's not <laughs> that one. He was uh, not in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah, we like Top Gun Pew Pew, uh, Top Gun Zoom Zoom. Top Gun, the topest of guns. Oh yeah, the topest of guns. Uh, we had a couple of others that were pretty good. It, look, all, pretty much all sequel names are are terrible. Like, but this is this one is kind of have... insane. This one is kind of insane because I... it's like, hey, the first one wasn't about Maverick. Now we're really going into Maverick. What do you mean? But I actually heard the explanation technically, which is that uh, Kosinski, the director, uh, Jerry Bruckheimer sent him the the script, twenty seventeen. And then they both yeah. fly to Paris because Tom, uh, Top Gun, because Tom Cruise is Tom Gun, is uh, filming Fallout in Paris, and uh, they sit together, they talk about it, and apparently the way Kosinski kind of pitches the movie and convinces him is that 
is again the emotional stakes and it says hey the action is just the way we tell the story but this is a story about the character this is top gun the story about maverick so it has to be called top gun maverick as opposed to the story of what i don't know so my takeaway is that they literally call it top gun maverick to convince tom cruise to make the movie because it's the yeah i i still don't know yeah i mean that's that's kind of the 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 big flaw of the film is the whole thing is like, is it Tom Cruise so cool? It's like, well, yeah, I mean, he he's... is flying fighter jets. He is pretty cool, but it, it it's like, do you, do you really need the self esteem boost, dude? Come on. Yeah. Well, I also think Kaczynski, his first film has the ultimate Lega sequel title, which is Tron Legacy. So, I, Top Gun Legacy yeah. would have been a better name than Top Gun Maverick. It act, that, yeah, that, that I, kind of actually is the legacy of Top I, Gun. I, I, anyway. I have no problem with Top Gun Maverick here. Top Gun uh, class yeah. of 2022. Yeah. Top Gun, yeah. the next generation. Top Gun, a new hope. <laughs> there are a lot of very strong names here. All right. Well, I'm going to let you keep just rattling off names here. But <laughs> while you're doing that, Ariella, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure to finally have you on the show yes. thank you and for those of you listening go see top gun maverick not any of these other other titles top gun maverick is what you need to google and have a great week we'll see you next week please remember to rate review and subscribe and share with everyone and catch you later Top Gun The Force Awakens. <laughs> Tom Gun. Top Gun The Force Awakens. I think it's sort of pretty good. Um, Top Gun uh, Dead on the Nile. I think it was even pretty good. I like that one. What's the name of the uh, the Avatar? Something about the sea? The water? The Way of Water. Yeah, Top Gun The Way of Water. The Seed Bearer. Yes, that's pretty good. Top Gun and the Deadly yeah. Hallows. All of these names make the same sense. sense as the other one. Top Gun and the Goblet of Fire. I really like. Top Gun and the Two Towers. Pretty good. Top Gun the Return of the King. Actually fantastic. That's pretty good. Yeah, there we go. This is pretty... We're going to have to reconsider. Well, anyway. I'm, I'm going to go with Top Gun Danger Zone is what I'm going to do. I don't know. Danger, Top Gun Highway Through the Danger Zone, iconic. Yeah. Top Gun Great Danger song. Zone, fantastic name. Top Gun, yeah. we like to play sports in the beach wearing jeans, <laughs> which seems the most insane. Everyone is going to get the worst rash ever. <laughs> like, that's what I was worried about. This is insane. They did it in two movies in a row. Top Gun Stock in Development. Top Gun, Top Gun and the Secret Life of Pets. Top Gun Return of the Titans. Top Gun the Movie. Top Gun the Witch in the Wardrobe. Oh, yeah. Top Gun the series. Top Gun the musical. <laughs> Top Gun the series, the musical, the movie. Mm-hmm. Top Gun Guan Top, Top Gun Guan Kenobi. Yeah, that's pretty strong. Top Gun and the Multiverse of Madness. Top Gun Ragnarok. Nog. Pot. 
Top Gun, Gun Infinity War. Mm-hmm. Top Gun P in the City. Top Gun Dalmatians. <laughs> Top Gun Lost in New York. My Top favorite Gun are the Airbud. My favorite are the Airbud ones, like Top Gun World Series Pup. <laughs> <laughs> Top Gun Golden Receiver. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna stop recording.